0: Welcome to Six Feet From Normal, a podcast dedicated to covering untold stories of the coronavirus pandemic, brought to you by reporters at
1: Medill News Service.
0: I'm Joe Snell. I'm Alec Bose.
2: I'm Sarah Wilson.
1: On this week's episode, we look at the decision-making process of business owners of whether to open back up or not.
2: While many people are looking to return to business as usual as states ease social distancing restrictions, some business owners are choosing to remain closed. On both ends, however, owners are operating out of a similar abundance of caution for the safety of their customers and employees.
0: We'll talk to two such businesses from Georgia and Alabama who have responded very differently during this moment.
1: Then, we'll be speaking with Yusuf Yukana, a bakery owner from Northern Iraq. He'll speak with us about how he first started the business, the impact it's had on his community, and the most important thing he learned about starting a bakery.
2: Later, we'll chat with our colleague, Kelly Cannon, to talk about how the election process will play out during a pandemic and what polling places are doing to prepare.
0: There's lots to get to, so stick around.
2: Georgia Governor Brian Kemp loosened the clamp of the coronavirus lockdown across the state at the end of April, despite criticism from mayors and even President Trump. He was the first governor to allow businesses such as nail salons, bowling alleys, tattoo parlors, and dine-in eateries to reopen.
3: Today we are announcing plans to incrementally and safely reopen sectors of our economy. By taking this measured action, we will get Georgians back to work safely without undermining the progress that we all have made in this battle against COVID-19.
1: A coalition of Georgia chefs and restaurant owners are pushing back against the ease of restrictions, coming together under a hashtag, "GA Together." Chef and former top chef judge Hugh Atchison is among them, deciding not to open his spots in Atlanta and Athens, Georgia. We caught up with Hugh to take us through some of his concerns about reopening while the pandemic rages on. Hugh, uh, thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate it.
3: Thanks for having me.
2: First, can you just give us a sense about what it's been like to kind of be closed for these past few weeks? How has it impacted um, kind of your business?
3: Yeah, we closed down on the Ides of March, uh, March 15th. And we, in Atlanta at Empire State South, we pivoted towards being, doing pretty elaborate to-go offerings. Um, in Athens, we stayed dark. I, we successfully got PPP at the two restaurants I ostensibly own so we're on an eight-week clock of payroll being covered with a little bit extra to cover the incidentals and rent um as soon as that expires that's when we're going to start burning cash if uh, we're not in a position to successfully reopen and do the hospitality that we've uh, been doing for so long
1: so despite uh governor kemp easing some of these uh social distancing restrictions. You and a coalition of other Georgia restaurants have decided to stay closed. Can you talk about what went into that decision-making process?
3: Well, uh, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist. Uh, but it seems like probably the worst industries to reopen right now are restaurants in a large regard. Restaurants have the most point of physical contact. So at the same time that the governor of Georgia's um, banning uh, visitation and tours of the governor's mansion, I am asked to reopen my restaurant and put my frontline employees at risk. Testing in Georgia is still less than 2% of the population. And as we know, asymptomatic cases in COVID-19 are uh, are the real silent thing that walks among us. And, and that's really worrisome in a in a place where, you know, in a typical day in a restaurant, I get 25 deliveries. And I have, you know, 200 different clients, customers coming in. And, um, you know, I, have, I employ 60 people at Empire State South. And all of that interaction is not, you know, that's not siloing your people in a, in a safe and respective way. So my job has to be right now to assure myself and my family and create protocols and then assure my staff. And then assure the general public who wants to come dine with us that uh, many of whom are 60 years or older that I'm taking, you know, I'm factoring in their safety into every decision I make right now. So we need manifestos. We need step by step uh, what are called HACCP guidelines, uh, hazard analysis and action control plans um, that are commonplace in the restaurant industry and high end dining at least. You did understand your role in this is to mitigate risk. And so, you know, requiring people to wear masks except when uh, consuming food or drink um, is going to be mandatory. Um, reservations will be 100%. The majority of our dining room will be outside because we have large outdoor spaces. The problem with businesses rushing to, you know, uh, again, monetize the situations are, is that we fall into a very dangerous realm. Of, uh, though they think they're taking care of their people, they don't understand that, you know, a... 19-year-old dishwasher who comes in and lives 20 miles away probably comes on public transport, but that dishwasher needs to pay his rent. And if he doesn't show up for work, he's losing his job. And anybody who's lost a job right now and is then tasked with finding one in an economy that just put 22 million people out of work is going to be SOL. So it's just the small amount of money that we'd possibly make is just it's negligible compared to the risk involved. I mean, we'll get it up open and operational within the month. But, you know, right now it's like, Washington Post did a survey today saying that 78% of people don't think restaurants should be open in the United States right now. So if those people say that, who's coming out to dinner?
2: Um, It sounds like, you know, you were lucky to get the the, um, PPP money to kind of, successfully go through that process and then also to have like this well established restaurant. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, kind of about the considerations that smaller business owners might have to take.
3: I bank with Wells Fargo in Atlanta and we had the most miserable time trying to get PPP. Um, but because, um, I live in a small town and have friends who've brokered mortgages for me in the past and things like that. I, uh, We got PPP through a very small bank in Athens and we were lucky, but a lot of that's, I mean, a, I know how to navigate the system. I know how to push my accounts to get me the information I quickly need to turn around an application. That's very complex. I do have established businesses. You know, I've got, um, a number of books. I've got a number of other ways of monetizing my situation to make sure that I don't go completely broke. Um, and a lot of independent r- r- businesses and restaurants are not in that type of position where they have that type of luxury. And I feel for them. Uh, it's it's going to be a really hard time for the small mom and pop places. Uh, you know, in Atlanta, there's a huge contingent of restaurants on what's called Buford Highway on the uh, east side of the city, which is just a amazing hodgepodge of every nationality around the world having restaurants. But if you're an Indonesian restaurant or a Malaysian restaurant and don't your bank doesn't speak Malaysian and you don't understand the processes and most of your cash business and you try and pay your taxes and do your thing, you know you're you're really in dire straits right now. Before we try and save businesses, we just have to make sure our community is as healthy as it can be, that they're being fed and more importantly nourished. Uh, that we've got their backs in a scenario where a lot of people are not feeling like they're being taken care of, and that we're just trying to do the right thing. Uh, we're being communitarians, and we're being citizens who care about everybody, not just your own class.
1: It seems to me that, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, the the economics are not as... Uh, important in this scenario as the safety of your customers and your employees. So with that being said, what would be the tipping point for you to uh, reopen? Would it be a health breakthrough or in area or treatment breakthrough, or would it be some sort of, um, you know, more dire financial situation? What would be that final sort of uh, straw that breaks the camel's back? So to speak.
3: I mean, it all goes to the curve and, uh, You know, when we look at Spain and Italy who went through hell and back in COVID-19, when we look at where they are in a curve of new cases, that's a point where you see that the virus has kind of exhausted itself through the community and through the population, um, taking massive losses along the way. Um, We don't want to see anyone pass because of this, but. The curve in Georgia is, um, we're at the very top. We're kind of hobbling around the top. There's been no precipitous drop. And a precipitous drop comes from testing, social isolation, enacted uh, moratoriums on business, you know, the really smart thinking, mandatory mask wearing, Um, you know, but now we've got people crying tyranny of the fact that they have to wear a mask at Applebee's. Um, and th- those people have no idea what true tyranny is, and uh, or nor do they have an idea about what public health is, and that is a very very dangerous vocal minority that just does not should not have a choice in this. This is not a seatbelt. Um, you know, we mandate that you wear a seatbelt, right? Okay. Well, it is very difficult to kill three thousand people with your car but we've had people who've been COVID carriers who are responsible for transmitting the virus to as many as 3,000 people. So, you know, if you walk into my restaurant when I'm ready to open and I'm mandating that you ma- have got to have a mask on before I see you, and you say, no, I'm not gonna do that, I'm gonna say, then you need to go away. And the next step is I call the police. So, look, you don't, the economics of this are very, very simple. Money doesn't matter if you're dead. I mean, the, the, the crazy sad thing is that 50% of restaurants won't even reopen. Where are 5 million people going to go and work? Um, so if we think the economy is bad now, it's, it's going to get a lot worse.
2: I don't know if you saw this, but the city of Tampa is trying out this pilot program where they're actually closing down some streets to vehicles and allowing restaurants to set up outdoor dining spaces. What do you think about that and kind of, do you have any ideas of what your new normal might look like after this?
3: I think that is an amazing step. I think you're seeing Europe um, do more of that as well, even though they've been a sidewalk dining culture for forever. Um, But, you know, you have to expand the footprint uh, of your space and you have to give distance between people. I think in Tampa specifically, I'm glad they're doing that. I don't really want to see them do it yet. Um, I want to see them do it in a month. I think that, you know, we're still in a a pandemic um, thought set and that needs to be adhered to. So, no, I think that we need to loosen regulation on sidewalk dining and give people more operators, more opportunity to really expand outside. I've never been a really big fan of dining outside, but I'm into it now.
2: Thank you for being so kind of thorough and thoughtful with your answers.
3: All good.
1: Yeah, no, thank you so much for joining us. You, This was actually great.
3: Thank you. Good, good. Thanks a lot.
1: there are also businesses that are deciding to reopen as stay-at-home orders are relaxed. In Alabama, Governor Kay Ivey lifted restrictions on some businesses beginning April 30th, including retail businesses with 50% capacity. Anna Groom owns one such business called South Boutique, which has four locations in Alabama. Groom spoke with us about why she decided to open, even as other retailers around her remain shuttered.
4: So whenever COVID first happened, we had to make a decision whether or not we were going to remain open for as long as we possibly could or decide to close where most of the businesses around us were actually closing. You know, it was a hard decision to make. After about two weeks, we did decide to close. At that point, we were trying to figure out, okay, what do we do from here in order to keep ourselves you know where they were. Obviously, they're going to take pretty big hit. But what can we do in the meantime? So we had a um, we have a really big social media following. Um, where we're constantly talking to our customers throughout that. Um, we're we have personal relationships with these customers where we could text them and them items of new arrivals, anything and everything that we could think of. We didn't have a website at the time because. We're actually moving to a new warehouse in the next few months, so our website was down, which was not good timing, but we decided to put some things on the web, and um, fortunately, it was great. People were not afraid to shop online, and our sales were just pretty much booming through the online presence, which is, you know, just shows you how much
2: interaction that you can get from having a website. That must have been such an anxious time for you. But it sounds like from an economic perspective, like everything kind of worked out.
4: Yeah, we, you know, it was a, I would say the longest month and a half I've ever been through in my life. It's something that no one expected and no one knew what was going to happen. I was worried about not just my stores being closed and not being able to service, you know, the community and our customers that are super loyal to us and depend on us for their needs, but I had 50 employees that I was extremely concerned about how I was going to keep them, you know, obviously getting paid and then being shut down, you know, you're not, what do you do? So Mm -hmm. I was at a place where do I cut back? Do I, you know, how do you handle this? And just talking to other business owners, you know, most companies were having to furlough their employees, having to, you know, they're being laid off. And fortunately, this is something that just, to me, I just, I look back on now, even though we're still not over this and we're still going through it, but knowing that we did not have to let one employee go, we were able to keep every single one of them. None of them had to file unemployment. Um, and now we're back open and they're all working again. So for me, that not only just being excited about being open, but knowing that we were able to survive this and keep all of our employees. It was just, to me, a huge accomplishment.
2: Yeah, that's really incredible for a small business owner. Um, so obviously, Governor Ivey allowed businesses to open back up on April 30th, um, and your Alabama locations are open now. So what went into that decision-making process? Was it kind of an easy decision to make, or was it difficult? It was pretty difficult. I guess
4: knowing that, you know, when you talk to your surrounding neighbors and knowing that They've decided to remain closed, but you decided to go in a completely different direction and open. Um, we knew that we were probably going to get um, <laughs> a little bit of heat from that, but we decided to open at 5 o'clock on April 30th, the minute that the order was listed. And to be honest, it was the best decision we could have ever made. We had about five news outlets come and cover our opening because we were the first ones. And I'll be honest, our customers were thrilled. Our community was beyond excited to see that we were opening. Um, of course we had to take certain measures and you know we wanted our customers to be safe and healthy and our employees to also, you know, follow these guidelines. Um, and everything just it worked out perfectly. Um, we steam our clothes. So Anything that was tried on, it was immediately steamed because the heat will kill the virus. And, you know, it's it's a slow start. It's not, I would say, like it usually is. It would normally be the time where kids are graduating and there's trips coming up. This is our first year, our busiest time of the year. And obviously, things have changed. There's not graduation mm-hmm. and trips are being canceled. So it's just, uh, you know, I know the summer might look quite different than what we're used to with classes being out, our students not being there. But I know for the fall kids are gearing up and, you know, are already coming in. You know, they're telling us what they're wanting to buy for and they're already excited about this, you know, the football season that, you know, it's gonna look different. And it's not gonna be the typical, Mm -hmm. you know, exciting, you know, full college experience that we're probably used to, but I do know that we will eventually get there, but they're still excited and still wanting to buy and just, you know, holding on to that hope that it's going to eventually turn around.
2: Yeah. And that kind of leads into my last question about what this means for your, you know, maybe new normal for how you conduct business, the social distancing guidelines and kind of a limited store capacity. Do you think that it's going to be sustainable? You no, know,
4: that's something that we kind of talk about every week, about what is the new normal and what is this going to look like. And I think it put a lot into perspective. You know, things aren't going to be normal. Um, in the retail world, in our industry, you know, you're going to be more careful about your orders because you know that you can't have as many people in your store. You know, we're used to seeing on a typical day on getting ready for a football weekend, we'll have anywhere from 50 to 100 people in our 1,600 square feet store, and we know that's not going to happen anymore. But how do you go about this change? And I think it's building that one-on-one customer relationship, which I feel like we truly have with our customers just because we do have such a loyal following, um, thankfully. They're understanding. They get it. You know, they're in the... They, they, they want this to... I guess all be a thing of the past and they're willing to do whatever it takes as far as if they are having to follow certain guidelines, they'll do it in order to, you know, just to be able to come in your store. You know, every single day something changes. It's different for us on so many different levels with what guidelines we're having to follow or, you know, we don't know what tomorrow looks like. And so we're doing the best we can obviously just to remain open. So we don't have to close again if anything does change, but You know, I don't think that I know yet what the new normal is going to look like. And I think it's going to take a few months for us to see any kind of change. And I think by fall, we'll really see like consistent traffic and consistent sales where we're going to know, okay, this is, you know, we got through the, the hard part, the summer season. You know, this is what our new normal looks like by fall.
2: Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me.
4: Well, thank you so much for thinking of us. And if we can do anything else, please let us know.
0: It's a crowded marketplace in the Iraqi city of Slemania. And moving quickly through the crowd is Yosef Johanna. Yosef is an engineer. But today, he's learning how to run a bakery.
5: I didn't have any experience in bakeries. I mean, I went to Duhok, I went to other places to get ideas. I went all the way to Slomania and lots of other distant places. I learned all the good things from each bakery, and lastly, I learned that the thing that makes a bakery successful is its cleanliness. The trip
0: to Sleimania was one of many that Johanna would take. For months he traversed cities and towns across northern Iraq and visited dozens of both large and small bakers. Yosef's goal is to take back what he learns and apply it to his own bakery in a small village nearly 50 miles north of the city. Our story begins in Nala the largely farming community is made up of eight Assyrian villages and roughly 600 residents. Yosef moved his family from Mosul to live in his father's hometown of Nala just a few years ago. Nala was an area that he remembers fondly from childhood, but he admits he never imagined one day leaving Mosul and moving back to the countryside.
5: I lived in 2011 because I was Christian there. I have my family, my family I have a wife and three daughters, and being a Syrian living in Mosul, it was very scary because they would abduct girls there. I came to Sharafiyah, which is close to Al-Qush. Then ISIS happened. Before then I would come and go as I pleased. But since twenty fourteen, we left and sold our house. They would kill Assyrians there. Yes.
0: As Josef settled into his new community, the idea to start a bakery came from an Assyrian that was visiting Nala from California. Elizabeth Hermes convinced Yosef that opening a bakery would be a good business for the village. Together, they pursued funding and were introduced to Voice of the Martyrs Finland. Yosef remembers when residents first heard that he was going to open a bakery. Reactions were largely mixed.
5: I was convinced, they weren't convinced, that this project would succeed. In May of last year,
0: construction began, but Yosef encountered a number of challenges with building a new business in
5: such a rural area. Here there are a lot of farmers, there aren't any carpenters, there aren't any steel workers, there aren't any workers who cast concrete, so I had to sit and wait for them, since some of them were coming from far away. By the time they came and asked, I would have to give double price. By December, construction was complete, and around Christmas time,
0: Josef began testing the equipment by passing out free bread across the village. As he slowly opened for business in January, he started making plans for a big ceremony to take place around the Assyrian New Year in April. He even invited VOM Finland representatives. And then, the coronavirus hit. But the virus started to bring an unexpected upside. To escape rigid stay-at-home orders in the larger cities, an influx of Assyrians began pouring into Nala. A boom of new business
5: soon hit shops like Yosef's. You saw how people were coming and going and buying bread. There were so many people coming that we had to bake three times a day.
0: Today, Yosef has three employees that bake six days a week and feed between 20 to 50 customers a day. Yosef even admits that he steps in to do some of the baking as well. His next plans for the business? Expand into a second floor and even open a cafe. In the meantime, he says he's committed to showing the residents in his community that his bakery will indeed be successful.
5: (laughs) I am a volunteer. For three years I was working like a volunteer. There were people who thought we wouldn't succeed. So I said I'm going to prove to them that we would succeed. This wasn't to prove to the people who were buying bread, but to the people who said that I wouldn't succeed. Some people said I should invest my money in something else. They had already decided that I wouldn't succeed. But I was committed and I succeeded. 2020
2: is proving to have some of the biggest stories of our lifetime both the COVID-19 pandemic and an extremely consequential presidential election. A group of Medill reporters put their heads together to see how elections may look different in November, examining how each state's election officials have responded to the novel coronavirus so far. Kelly Cannon gave us some insight on what they found.
6: So a team of colleagues here at Northwestern's Medill School of Journalism were working on a one source database of uh, sorts to track what each state is doing to carry out its primary elections and looking ahead to the November general election amidst this global pandemic. We're looking at the challenges of states that are suddenly having to scramble and ramp up their um, election efforts to facilitate additional absentee voting, um, mailing out ballots to all registered voters. Some states have really solid uh, vote-by-mail policies that they've had for years, for example, in Washington state. So they're really feeling very good about their, um, their efforts in this space looking ahead to November. But other states, haven't had this as a normal practice and have to obviously spend a lot of time, resources and effort to ramp up. So we're tracking all of these developments in a one source place and updating it continuously so people can go to their state on the database and find the latest news of what they can expect um, for their primaries and in November.
1: Thanks a bunch, Kelly. So this is a team effort, uh, obviously. So can you talk a little bit about how many reporters are contributing to this project and how you're dividing these responsibilities evenly?
6: So we have a team of about five folks who are basically taking chunks of the United States, and we did it alphabetically. So there was not much method to the madness, but we split up the states and um, started calling secretaries of state, started calling election officials at the local levels in these states, because right now there isn't a uniform um, approach to how elections are carried out in the midst of this pandemic. So everything that is new and updating comes from these state and local levels, So that's where the news comes from. That's why we've split up the states and are taking the approach of calling the local election officials and having conversations with them to discuss what's the latest updates, because it is a rapidly evolving and and very fluid situation. So that's why we think the database tracker is a unique source, because people need to understand that everything is subject to change in the midst of this global pandemic. And that includes policies and procedures surrounding this 2020 election cycle.
0: So Kelly, you mentioned part of your role is looking at news from respective regions and deciding what should be added to the election tractor. Can you tell me what types of stories or information stands out to you as something that could be potentially added?
6: I actually um, was reporting on contingency planning Um, for elections in the midst of a potential pandemic before Super Tuesday. So I've been tracking this story for a while now, talking to a bunch of secretaries of state before Super Tuesday, just to see how the coronavirus was impacting their primaries. And for example, in Alabama, the secretary of state, John Merrill, said at the time before Super Tuesday, the coronavirus had not impacted their elections. They were, you know, subject, thing. Things were subject to change, but at the time there were no plans in place. And I talked to Kim um, Wyman, the secretary of state in Washington, and she felt very confident because, again, their elections are all carried out um, by mail, even though. They're a vote-by-mail state already. They're still ramping up efforts because this is the first presidential election where they're going to have same-day voter registration. The counties in Washington state are now using the money they're getting from the CARES Act and trying to figure out how to use that money to create effective social distancing in these new locations that they're going to have to use. Um, She told me in... One of her counties south of Seattle, they're possibly looking into renting out the parking lot of a minor league baseball team and using it that as a drive-up ballot issuance and voter registration center. There are lots of things that are developing. Um, and I think that when you have these conversations with election officials and states, that's where you find out these interesting initiatives and efforts that they're taking to creatively find the best way forward and innovate these elections because we have to in order to make them safe for all voters.
1: Kelly, that's absolutely fascinating. And last question for me, and then I'm going to turn it over to Joe. You mentioned a lot of sort of interesting new um, information about what's happening just in Washington State alone about uh, uh, same-day voter registration. What other... um, stories can our audience look forward to in terms of these sort of follow-up stories? Um, Like I said, you mentioned one, but can you uh, maybe talk about one that maybe you may not be working on yourself, but um, the team is?
6: I think we're all interested in fundamentally the same themes and the same issues. And that is really what election modifications are being taken, what should be avoided during this COVID-19 pandemic. And that's what I'm excited to see from my colleagues is how are their states approaching this, the primaries and this fundamental presidential election in November? Because again, it's a Patrick approach. There's no national uniform system for how a presidential election year is going to be carried out in the midst of this pandemic that is killing Americans at an alarming rate.
0: Oh, you touched on this a few times in our conversation, but I'd love to hear why you think a tool like this is important, especially now when we are, as you said, potentially entering one of the most important election cycles in history.
6: I think the tool that I'm looking into is the idea of voting by mail or ramping up efforts to make absentee voting more available. For example, in West Virginia, um, the attorney general recently went back into the state um, code and reinterpreted the law to include an excuse under the law as encompassing fears surrounding leaving the home to vote because of the coronavirus. So I think we're seeing that even in states where there was you needed an excuse to vote absentee. Now there are certain mechanisms that are allowing those voters to be able to take advantage of absentee voting, Um, whether it's making it a no excuse jurisdiction or interpreting a new sort of excuse to encompass coronavirus issues. So I think all of these unique situations are important to take into consideration when considering um, how to ensure every legally eligible voter has that opportunity to cast their ballot without risking their health. And I think the absentee voting and mail-in voting is is definitely a way to reduce the risk. We saw in the Wisconsin April 7th presidential primary snaked lines around polling places. Social distancing was virtually impossible um, for these folks who were lining up on a very cold Wisconsin day just to exercise their right to vote. Um, and that's the kind of thing I think election officials, Really want to avoid those those really stark images of people wearing masks out in the cold, lined up close to each other, and deciding that they have to take a risk to their own personal health and well being in order to fundamentally um, participate in this democracy that we all hold so dear. Do you That's think
0: true. this tool has the ability to educate people about that? I,
6: I do. I, I think, think that. that even, even, even us, us as reporters, reporters, I think we're all learning new things, things about how our election systems work. So I think that if there's one place that you can go and have easy, accessible information about what are the voting methods, what are the deadlines, what are the prerequisites to receiving a mail-in ballot, if that's available, um, what kind of in-person voting options are available in that state, if those are even available. Um, I know many states have actually, for some of their upcoming primaries, completely canceled in-person voting. I believe in in Vermont, they've, for their upcoming um, primary, they're going to be doing away with all in-person voting and everything will be mail-in. And there will be some curbside drop-offs, which a lot of states are slowly implementing. But Having one place to go, I think, is important when there's a lot of information out there and people need the facts.
0: When can our audience expect to see the election tracker released?
6: (laughs) We are going to be going live on Friday. We're really excited about it. And it's going to be a tool that will be constantly updated. So we have a lot of the deadlines as they stand now regarding requesting absentee ballots and some recent news and developments from our interviews with sources in these states, but you can expect to be able to check back and have those updates there in an easily digestible format.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kelly.
6: Thank you both.
2: Thanks so much for joining us this week on Six Feet From Normal.
1: We really hope you enjoyed these stories. Be sure to tune in again next Friday and share this with your friends and family. In the meantime,
0: check out our website, covidanalyzer.nationalsecurityzone.org, and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Medill on the Hill.
2: Until next time, I'm Sarah Wilson.
0: I'm Alec Bose. And I'm Joe Snell. Take care and stay safe, everyone.